The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Stop! Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. This is the word of the Lord. All four of the Gospels have this account of the cleansing of the temple. But you need to remember that Mark did not write his Gospel until about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the other three are written from 10 to 15 years later than that. The Synoptic Gospels, the ones that look more alike, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus' ministry taking place in the northern province of Galilee. He came south at the beginning of that ministry to be baptized in the Jordan by John, but went right back up to his home territory, spent his time there, and then made one fateful trip to Jerusalem, during which time he was crucified. John tells us that he went to Jerusalem three different times after he began his ministry. In fact, he mentions specifically three different Passover occasions. That's where we get the idea that Jesus' ministry must have lasted three years. The Synoptic Gospels again have him there only one time after he began his ministry. Matthew and Luke say that he cleansed the temple on Sunday afternoon, what we know as Palm Sunday. Mark says, no, it was the next day, on Monday. John says, no, it was two years before. It was on the first trip, he says, to Jerusalem. Most of the year we're going to be dealing with Mark's account of the gospel. Occasionally, passages from John. This is one of those days. Let's see what John has to say about this. He begins by saying... It was time for Pesach, Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, when you read in the Bible, one going up to Jerusalem, it doesn't mean going north. Today, for us, going up means north, going down means south, going over may mean east or west. But the reason they said up in the Bible is that Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than most of them lived. Jerusalem's about 3,700 feet above sea level. So one does go up to Jerusalem. But the key thing is that Jesus was following what his mother and father had taught, and that is they were observant Jews. Notice in the cleansing of the temple how the Synoptic Gospels specifically mention certain groups of people who oppose Jesus' action in Jerusalem. And John does us a great disservice when he simply says, the Jews because we may forget that everybody who was following Jesus was a Jew. They were all Jews. There were some who were the power establishment in Jerusalem. Those were the ones with whom he had trouble. All these others who followed him, who came to listen to him, who came just to be able to touch him, were also Jews. Jesus, as Mary and Joseph, 
was an observant Jew. Did you see the Newsweek article this week about a German archaeologist named Dr. Klaus Schmidt and a group of Turkish archaeologists who are working with him? They've been working a dozen years, 12 years, in a community they've discovered in southeastern part of Turkey, just about 20 miles from the Syrian border. Dr. Schmidt and those working with him say they have found at least 20 temples in one close area that carbon date to 11,500 years ago. You know what that means? If that be a fact, then it is the oldest carved building stones we know about in the world. There are older cave drawings, older cave paintings, but this would be the oldest thing that humans cut out, if you would, themselves and then engraved. And Dr. Schmidt says it also means that our understanding of humankind's movement toward civilization, we've had upside down. What we've long believed is that humans functioned for about 140,000 years as hunters and gatherers. For 140,000 years, we followed the game wherever it went. I mean wild game. We learned immigration patterns so that we knew when the ducks would be there, when the geese would be there, when the deer or whatever would be there. And we gathered from whatever grew close to us. Behavioral scientists have believed that after 140,000 years, somebody got the great idea, what if we domesticated animals? What if we put a male and a female in a pen and had little ones and we didn't have to go hunt them? What if instead of our depending strictly upon our ability to find something that's grown out there in the meadow or on the mountains, we cultivated the soil? And after they learned how to domesticate animals and cultivate the soil, they began to produce surplus, which gave them time to do other things, and they had gods and goddesses and built temples to them. That's been the prevailing thought. But Dr. Schmidt says that there are no trash heaps, if you would, around these temples, meaning humans were not settled there. They find no evidence of dwellings for people there, just temples. And he says, I believe when these temples were built 11,500 years ago, the people who built them was, were still hunters and gatherers. That their temples became so important to them, they decided if we're going to maintain these, we don't have to have time to go chase wild animals and go foraging in the meadows or on the sides of mountains. We need to build pens and put males and females in them and breed our own. We need to learn to till the soil. That the gods and the temples to those gods came first in moving us toward civilization. One scholar asked him, well, why were these abandoned then? And he said, when you discover that your old gods are not really effective, you start looking for new gods. About 7,500 years after those temples were built in what is now southeastern Turkey, an old man and an old woman in Ur 
in what is modern-day Iraq decided they needed a new God. And that God promised them a son, a family, a heritage. And nearly 2,000 years after Abraham and Sarah, Mary and Joseph and Jesus still believed Israel's God was the only real God. Number two. The way John tells this story is different from the synoptics. All three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say that Jesus yelled at those who were in the temple, Get out, you den of thieves. John says, Get out. My father's house shall not be known as a house of trade. Dr. Raymond Brown taught for decades at Yale Divinity School and wrote a two-volume, huge two-volume commentary on the Gospel of John. And Dr. Raymond Brown says, I believe the synoptics had in mind Jeremiah and John had in mind Zechariah. Jeremiah says, in trying to reform Judaism of hundreds of years before Jesus, the temple has become a den of thieves. Zechariah said, in the day of the Lord, that is, when Messiah finally comes, the temple will no longer be a house of trade. Dr. Raymond Brown says, if you were going to have a sacrificial system at the temple in Jerusalem, you needed animals for sale. For example, Jesus and his disciples had walked 90 miles. It would have been much easier to buy something to sacrifice than to drive some animal 90 miles down the Jordan River Road. Furthermore, no self-respecting Jew would have tried to use a coin with Caesar's image on it at the temple in Jerusalem. They were accustomed to exchanging coins, but Raymond Brown says the exchange rate was usually only 2 or 3%. That's not exorbitant. I pay that much to change a dollar into a euro. Dr. Brown says he believes John understands Jesus to be calling into question the whole sacrificial system. That he's saying, I know you've got to have these sellers and these traders. If you're going to do things the way you've been doing them all these years, I'm telling you, the way you've been doing them is the wrong way. It's the wrong way. The sacrificial system is not the way. I'm still reading obituaries. To read the one Tuesday, Winston Spencer Churchill died. Grandson of Sir Winston Churchill. The BBC were publicizing this, that he had died. He was 69 years old. Said he was certainly born of privilege. He was born in Checkers, the Churchill family home out in the country. He went to Eton, as had Churchill's forever. He went to Oxford, as had Churchill's forever. He had money. When he sort of ran low there at one point in his life, he sold off a lot of his grandfather's stuff, and then he had more money. But his life was not 
very happy, it seems. His father was more often drunk than sober. His mother was a philanderer, according to the BBC. After numbers of men in her life, she ended up marrying a very wealthy American named Averill Harriman, if you recall. They were divorced, that pair, when little Winston Spencer Churchill was only five. He was sent off to Eton partly to get him away, get out of the house, and other kids did not properly respect this grandson of Sir Winston Churchill. He would write later that when one of them would waylay him in the dark at night, they would punch him in the stomach or in the face and say, Take that, bloody Spencer Churchill! Guess what? He became a heavy drinker and a philanderer, and at 69 he died. He followed the script, the script of part of his family, as humans have been doing for generations and generations. They follow the script. We hurt ourselves, we hurt those we love, we hurt those who love us the most. What is the answer to all of this business of sin? And John is saying, the Pesach lamb, the lamb of Passover, the Agnus Dei, God sent once and for all. He who knew no sin took on himself the sins of all the rest of us so that this old sacrificial system would be gone forever. You have to accept God's gift of forgiveness and right standing or reject it and make the same old mistakes the same old way forever and ever. Number three, destroy this temple, destroy this temple and see what you get. Destroy this temple and you will raise it in three days. This temple has been under reconstruction for 46 years. Ah, that helps us. Josephus says in his history of that first century that Herod the Great began the reconstruction of the temple in 19 before the Common Era, the year 19. 46 years from that would make 27. We know the Roman calendar is off by several years. Herod the Great died in the year 4 before the Common Era. If he was still living when Jesus was born, then Jesus didn't die in 33. He probably died about 29, 28. John says... Two years before his death, he was in Jerusalem, cleansed the temple. It was the year 27. The year 27, that reconstruction would continue, by the way, long after 27, all the way to 63. 82 years the reconstruction took, and then the Romans destroyed the whole thing seven years later. The temple, he said, was his own body. He was alluding to his body. Now stop and think with me here. What did the temple represent? It represented the clearest, best locus of God. Now, the Hebrew Scriptures are clear. One cannot take God and put Him in a building and lock the door and have Him there forever. But that God did come regularly to meet God's people on the top of Mount Moriah at the temple. And John is saying all those years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, guess what? The locus for us, the place we find God, clearest and best, is in a person, Jesus 
of Nazareth. It's in a person. Did you read your United Methodist Reporter story about Sarah Miles? Sarah was in her early 40s, wandered into a soup kitchen at an Episcopal church in San Francisco, California. She said, I didn't deserve anybody's being nice to me. I didn't deserve anybody's feeding me. But they were both nice to me and fed me. Gave me a place to wash my hands and face. And when I was through with my meal, the priest asked me quietly, Would you be willing to help us? And I served others. I helped clean up when the meal was over. Of course, how could I not? They had fed me and treated me well when I deserved neither. Sarah says, you see, I didn't know about Jesus. My parents never took me to church, never took me to Sunday school. We never had a Bible in my house. Nobody read the Bible to me. Nobody gave me one to read after I learned how to read. In my early 40s, in that Episcopal church, I started hearing about Jesus. And when I heard it, I knew this was the most wonderful thing I had ever heard in my whole life. That God, who created the heavens and the earth, had made himself so real to us in a flesh and blood person, I couldn't believe it. So she kept going to that Episcopal church and going to that Episcopal church. Guess what? Sarah now runs the soup kitchen. She's the superintendent of the soup kitchen. Well, they said, are you nice to everybody? Yeah, she said, I'm nice to everybody. Some of them nearly run me crazy. I could strangle some of them. Except I was taught you don't have to like them. You just have to be nice and feed them. So she's written a new book. It's called Jesus Freak. Feeding, Healing, and Raising the Dead. Feeding, Healing, and Raising the Dead. I tell you, you said, she says, all you folks that think you know all about Jesus, you need to listen to that story as if it were new and fresh, something you had never heard before. I tell you, it's the greatest story you have ever heard. Number four. Destroy this temple, I will raise it in three days. In the synoptics, it's always a passive tense verb. Jesus was raised by the power of God. Jesus was raised by the power of God. And four weeks from today, this great choir with brass ensemble and so on will be providing powerful music on Easter Sunday. I'll be preaching the best I know how for you. Well, let's talk just a little bit about raising of the dead now. You remember two years ago when Dr. Kay Northcutt came to give our Barton Clinton Gordy addresses? Well, she had an article just this week in Christian Century Magazine. It comes out of Chicago. And Dr. Northcutt was saying that she exercises by doing yoga and she said in the class she belongs to, they spend almost an hour uh, of these special exercises that are called warrior poses. So that's what they're called. They're called warrior poses. And then just before the end of the hour, the instructor says, now we're going to assume the 
corpse pose. So the first time I heard that, it bothered me a little. Uh, yes, you're going to see if you can lie as still and as much at peace as one who has died. The warrior pose, the death corpse pose. She said, my best friend died of cancer. And when I talked to my pastor about this biggest hurt and pain, he said, Kay, you've been given a terrible gift. She said, that was strange. Terrible doesn't fit with gift. Gift with terrible. And then she said, I remember Dr. Brandon Scott, a professor at Phillips Theological Seminary in New Testament Studies, who reminds us that the word parable in Greek means to throw alongside, that Jesus threw alongside two things that normally didn't lie alongside. The kingdom of God is like a woman who lost two coins. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a tree planted by a spring. The kingdom of God is like a vine, and so on. Well, she said, a parable maybe. Terrible and gift thrown down alongside each other. When I got to Lent, she said, I thought I understood. Lent asks us to think about dying. Ash Wednesday, we have that cross made on our forehead. And somebody whispers as they place that cross on our forehead in ashes, From dust you came, to dust you shall return. We have 40 days to practice dying so that we may learn how to live. We practice dying so that we may learn how to live. And then Kay said, She and her sister recall that their mother was now really near death and they both went to care for her she said hospice thought she might live a few days in fact she lived three more weeks we had 21 days she said her mother had been an elementary school teacher all of her working lifetime she said my mother was a really good teacher because she loved kids she loved kids and in those last 21 days when she would drift in and out of consciousness and we would ask how she was doing, was there anything we could do for her, she would shake her head and say, I'm doing fine. This darling little boy is holding my head. This darling little boy is holding my hand. Our mother, she said, had learned how to die and knew how genuinely to live. Amen.